It's Extra Crispy, a podcast of curious conversations with me, your host, Crispin Schroeder. Well, today is not going to be so much a conversation. It's a bit more of a monologue. This is a monocrisp episode. But I want to share some thoughts that uh, have come through some of my experiences over the last few years, particularly around the idea of how we hold our beliefs online with other people, how that can be destructive, and maybe a, a, a way forward that can be more constructive. I wanted to do this episode today because I, I think if we have been in a place of political polarization and vitriol these last several years, it just seems very intense at the moment as we gear up for the midterms, uh, the elections this week. So I wanted to share a few thoughts on this. Uh, I'm For those of you who listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you know not only do I produce this podcast, I also write songs and play music, and and I'm also a pastor. And I've I've, I've been thinking lately about if I don't really even have any pastor cards to pass out to people, but I was thinking if I get a card for being a pastor, I'm going to put pastor slash research and development. Because so much of what I do, even as a pastor, I always think of it in terms of the actual experience on the ground. Like, how do these things actually work? And what are the effects in our lives? So I'm always looking at my own life and my own spirituality along those lines, trying to figure out, like, what are the actual real-world implications for this? So a lot of what I'm going to share with you today has come out of my wrestling through this, the, these issues the last few years and uh, what I think have been some helpful conclusions that I've come up with. So, without further ado, let's get into this Monocrisp episode of Extra Crispy. You ever have one of those experiences in your life where you did something that really seemed like a good idea at the time, but your actual experience of what you were doing <laughs> was not what you expected? Yeah, I'm sure we all have. We all do things like that. Well, I want to talk today about one of those experiences uh, that really seemed like a good idea at the time to me a few years ago. Um, this is probably four or five years ago. I had this great idea to use social media as a place where I could help get a discussion going about matters of faith, spirituality, theology, and, and also how they relate to a lot of the social issues that, that our world is facing. And part of the reason that I wanted to kind of host an online discussion about these topics was because of the way that these kinds of discussions have really helped me and shaped me over the years. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've sat down with somebody, particularly when they've 
come from a different background, have a different grid through which they see the world, come from different circumstances than me. And I've just learned so much. And so I thought maybe I could use social media to, to kind of help us have these discussions. Because certainly as a pastor, I find that, that people have all kinds of questions that they never get to ask on a Sunday morning. And oftentimes they're questions that are avoided by lots of pastors because they veer into maybe controversial territory. Sometimes they're questions about social issues. Sometimes they're questions about heaven and hell and where we came from and evolution and science and even questions about what, what is the deal with the cross of Christ? What does that really mean? Is it really relevant? But also I wanted to kind of host these or moderate these discussions in the sense because a lot of what I see going on in modern American Christianity just really doesn't remind me much of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. And so I kind of had these two things going on because oftentimes the the people who get the loudest voice from the Christian Christian side of things, oftentimes are the ones who are saying the things that are really the most anti-Christ. And so I thought, maybe I'll post some, some of my thoughts on Facebook, and we can have a discussion, and it's, it's not like I'm expecting people to agree with me on everything, but we can at least have a good back-and-forth debate, and maybe as we go through this process, we all come out learning something. Seemed like a good idea at the time. (laughs) Now, unbeknownst to me at the time, it would come out a year or two later, maybe two years later, Facebook was actually doing a grand social experiment. They were tampering with people's feeds and they were actually trying to see what would happen if they would get people who believed very differently on different issues uh, expose one another to each other's feeds and, you know, trying to stir up some stuff and see how people would react. So I don't know if I was actually one of the Facebook profiles that was targeted by Facebook's experiment, but I can tell you definitely that 2014 was a year of probably more controversy on my Facebook page than I've ever experienced. And though the results weren't exactly what I was hoping to happen, I can say that the whole experience was rather enlightening in a very different way. So I started posting some some of my thoughts on Facebook, on issues of Christianity, uh, even how we could think through different issues that were coming up in the world, whether it was racism, immigration, war, LGBT issues, whatever the the issues that were popping up. And there was a ton of issues popping up in 2014 with the rise of ISIS, with Ferguson, Missouri, with Ebola outbreaks, with threats of war in various places, not to mention the regular old political stuff that's always going on. So I began to post some of my thoughts. And again, I'm I'm telling you, I was not really trying to stir up stuff. I did want people to ask questions 
of their own biases, as I was. But what happened uh, deteriorated really quickly into uh, name-calling accusations. I, I just couldn't believe it. I would post something, and within a couple of hours, it's 50, 60 comments. And some of those posts went to, to several, you know, over 100, over 200 comments. And instead of actually helping people engage in thoughtful, civil dialogue around the issues, what began to happen was that people were just trash-talking one another, belittling one another. There was nobody that was interested in listening for the most part. There was a handful, but those people got silenced by those who were just trolls and those who... uh, were not interested in talking about anything. To mess with any of their beliefs was to mess with them as a person. That's the way it at least came across. And I I remember at one point during this experiment, and I did this for a couple of years, but at one point during this experiment, I'm getting ready to go out of town on a study retreat. I... uh, try to get away two or three times a year and go get a cabin for a few days just to get quiet, to reflect on life, read some books, and and it's just a very helpful thing. And, and on these retreats that I do, I don't typically uh, get online much at all because the place that I usually go doesn't have Wi-Fi. So I was getting ready to go on one of these study reading retreats a few years back and I had the car loaded up. I had the cabin rented. It was about an hour drive away. But just before I did it, I I put one little post on Facebook. I don't even remember what the topic was. And I got in my car and I drove over to the cabin. Once I got there, I spent, you know, the next half hour unloading everything, getting everything in the right place, getting my stack of books in the right place, and, you know, just getting ready to dial down and read. But I thought, you know, I better check in with Facebook and and, and see how that post is going. Because there is really an addictive quality to this whole thing, which I'll, I'll get at in a minute. Like I said, there was no Wi-Fi at the cabin, but... Via my smartphone, I could walk outside and find a spot where I could get still get a little data. <laughs> and so I found a spot where I could get some data, and I checked in with Facebook. And in the hour and a half since I had posted the message, there was a ton of comments. And these comments were just getting really hostile. And some of these comments were even from friends of mine going all the way back to college. Friends who even are Christians. And it really began to break my heart a bit. So for the next three days that I was supposed to be studying, I found that every few minutes I was getting drawn to go find some data and check in with Facebook again. (laughs) And try to type my comments and try to defend myself and try to make my points clearer. (laughs) Maybe I just needed to put another 10 or 20 comments so that they could get it. What I ended up finally doing after two days of that, I ended up just deleting the post. And 
I called up one of my friends who had really just said some horrible things to me. Things he would have, he'd never, he's never said to my face. I said, dude, can we go out and get some lunch and talk? He said, yeah. And so a few days later, we went and got a barbecue sandwich at a local place. And we're sitting down and we're catching up on how each other's doing, on our families, our kids. And it is amazing. It is truly amazing how when you move from dealing with ideas by yourself, typing away on a computer without having to look another person in the eyes, it is amazing how when you move from that kind of thing to actually sitting down face-to-face with someone else and breaking bread with them, or barbecue in that case, how the dynamic changes. And I began to share with my friend, I'm like, dude, you know, like, Stuff you were saying about me. Like we are both people who take our faith seriously. And we have for a long time. And I know we come down in different places in in, in the way that we understand certain aspects of Christianity. But I know you sincerely want to follow Jesus and and you're you're attempting to do that. But but so am I. And I I just began to share like, dude, like that was very hurtful what you said. And my friend said, you know, I'm really sorry. And as we kept talking, we realized that, you know, for all of our going back and forth, accusing one another and, you know, arguing over everything, we really did still care for each other's friends. But we had let our ideas about things separate us from our relationship with one another. That was not only a a good moment of reconciliation with my friend, but I think that was when I first started to see maybe a better way forward. And over the next year, I found myself time and time again feeling prompted when I would really want to express my opinion on whatever news story that came up that day, whether it was on police brutality, immigration, something economic, something concerning some issue that I really had no personal experience of, that instead of just adding my opinion to the noise, I would try to seek out people who were actually experiencing some of the events or who had experienced some of the things that the news story was about. Whether it was my black friends, my police officer friends, whether it was my homeless friends, my rich friends, I would try to move beyond merely sharing my feelings and thoughts to actually entering into a place of conversation. It slowly but surely began to dawn on me that what had been happening through much of this experiment that I was having on Facebook between the addictive nature of social media and my just becoming obsessed with, you know, following the progress of all the conversations and 
the accusations and defensiveness that were happening on all sides, mine included, I was missing the world outside my window of relationships, of connectedness. I was trading that in for the world inside my mind. Now it's, this is the thing about social media. It's very addictive. It is very addictive. Not only does social media tend to accentuate some of the more base aspects of our personality, defensiveness, fear, anxiety, our you know, righteous indignation, but it is so addictive as well. I, like millions of other people in America, was trapped in an addiction to protesting an addiction to sharing my opinions on things at the exclusion of actually doing something about that. There's a term that I heard many years ago to describe this, and it's called slacktivism. It is when we can boldly proclaim everything that we are for on social media, and it gives us the feeling of actually having done something about the situations in the world which we are so concerned about without actually having to get our hands dirty in the muck and mire of relationships and actually dealing with the issues outside our window. I was addicted and I needed help. The same way someone goes into a recovery program, I needed to change things. In my life, I needed to step away from the computer and engage in human relationships up close and personal. I needed to put feet to my prayers. I needed to stop ignoring the world outside my window for this imagined world in my mind. Got all of my stances on the issues of the day. Got an argument to argue if you stand in my way. I got me this feeling that I'm gonna make you feel. I got my accusations loaded and resolved made of steel. and figures and my strongest emotions to stand up for the truth with a zealous devotion gonna preach to the quiet gonna rile up the bird I got this part of feeling that's about to get stirred Junkies appetite. 
satisfied with pride and self-importance and malice on the side. Gotta keep on talking, talking myself blind to the world outside my window for the world inside my mind. Now, little did I know at the time, but what I was beginning to to sense and where I I would say the, the Spirit was inviting me into a different kind of way of life was very similar to what you would find in the 12 steps. Step four of the 12 steps is made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Step six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character and humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. I could go on with the rest of the steps, but the interesting thing I find with the 12 steps from AA and recovery is the person comes to Alcoholics Anonymous because they realize they have a problem with alcohol. But it is interesting when you look at the 12 steps, they don't talk about alcohol all that much other than admitting that you have a problem and your life has become unmanageable. See, the reality is the things that we become addicted to in life, whether it is alcohol, drugs, shopping, the opinions of others, or even sharing our opinions online. Oftentimes, so much of that need and what that does for us has more to do with what is going on beneath the surface. It is so much easier to take our frustrations out on other people, especially when we are empowered by technology and we don't have to look at other people in the eye to just vent and have that cathartic release of sharing our opinion because probably like most people most of us probably don't share our opinions all that much with the people we come in contact with every day we may keep a lot of things to ourselves it's after all it's not polite to talk about politics or religion and the various conversations you have throughout the day, but social media allows us to let all this stuff out. Which I think really shows that part of the problem is that we want the feeling of catharsis, the feeling of expression, the feeling of letting people know how we feel on issues, but without having to navigate the the messiness of relationship. It's an easy way out. It is kind of like pornography is for sex. Pornography is, you know, it it gives you the, the titillating parts of sex without the messiness of relationship. No wonder why, even as social media has become 
such an addiction in our world. Pornography addiction is on the rise as well. But this is one aspect where I think looking at Jesus at the incarnation of Christ can truly help inform the way that we live and interact with other human beings. I find it so compelling as I've meditated on the incarnation over the years that what does it mean that the God who created everything and, and look, if you're out there and you're an agnostic or atheist, just you can at least track with this illustration. I'm not expecting you to believe these things. But what does it mean if the God who created everything, when God wants to rescue the world, that God does it this way, by becoming one of us? Jesus, as the story says, he was born... And, you know, there's not much ink wasted up until you get to the Gospels where Jesus is doing his ministry. But if we're to take the Christian narrative seriously, it means that this Jesus who was born in a manger, we, we celebrate, you know, Advent with these nativity scenes and you have angels and shepherds and wise men from the East bringing their gifts of myrrh and gold and incense but what about the point in between that and the ministry of Jesus that he engages in when he's 30 years old, roughly? What does that communicate to us about how God works? I mean, after all, there's a world that needs saving and, and God seems to be taking God's time. This Jesus who was born in a manger had to get his diapers changed. He nursed at his mother's breast. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to share his toys with his cousin, John the Baptist. This Jesus went through puberty. He faced everything that we will ever face long before he ever did any of the things that he is famous for in the Gospels. And I've pondered this, this picture of Christ and, and what it reveals for years and years, and I, I can't get away from it, is one of the most impactful things in my life. If you break down the life of Jesus as we see it in the Gospels, for the three years that Jesus did public ministry, he had 30 years of just being a regular guy. If we break that down into percentages, what this means is that for the 10% of Jesus' life that he was famous for, the 10% where he was speaking to the crowds and doing miracles and all that stuff, for that 10%, there was 90% of just being a regular guy. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. John chapter 1, verse 14 the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood and we beheld his glory, the one of a kind glory, generous inside and out like father, like son. When God wants to save the world, God doesn't do it the way that we would do it, right? We would do this like a Steven Spielberg movie. We would do a large scale media press conference. We would do it with shock and awe. That's the way we do things. And yet God steps into our world and faces 
the muck and mire, the joy and tragedy of human existence as one of us. I mean, the Christmas story, we, we, one of the names that we, or, or titles that we sing about Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Before Jesus ever preaches a message, he spent time experiencing our reality as one of us. And the writer of the book of Hebrews would go on to write, reflecting on Jesus, he says, this is why we can approach God's throne to get help when we need it, because this Jesus, God incarnate, has faced everything that we will ever face, and he has empathy on us. Now, whether you believe in the Jesus story or not, whether you're a Christian or not, I I think there's something that we can all learn from this, though. (laughs) What if we applied that same 90-10 rule to our life? What if we put an emphasis on being in relationship with people? What if we put an emphasis on actually uh, experiencing reality the way other people do before we ever voice our opinions on it? What if we made that a priority? What if instead of railing about immigration, you actually found some people who were immigrants and you spent some time with them for a few days? What if instead of, you know, venting your opinions about LGBT issues, you got to know some people in that community and you got to hear their stories? What if instead of venting about the poor and the homeless, you got to hang out with some homeless people? And listen to them. Not going in to fix people, but going in to understand. There's a community in the town where I pastor that is subsidized community of, of mainly um, poor people. And we are, our church is looking to you know, see if there's some ways that we can help the community. But I've, I've been telling my church for the last few weeks, you know, we're going to do a few events over there to just connect with the community. And we're not going in there with promises or anything about what we can do. All we are doing is going in there to get to know these people, to discern what it is that they feel they need, to hear from them. And we're not going in to treat people as projects to be solved, but as human beings created in the image of God, we're not going in with answers, but as students and a posture of humility. Because that's the one thing that has blown me away over the years. If I will go into relationships with other people who are different from me, coming from different circumstances, if I will go in in a place of humility, I will learn something every time. But if I don't start in that place, I can objectify the very people that I want to help. And I can try helping them with something they don't even see as a need for help. And look, I know I talk about this stuff a ton. (laughs) Anybody that hangs around me, they hear this stuff from me because it has changed my life. And when I look around at the polarization of our world today, So much of that polarization is not based on people actually talking with each other, but talking at each other. 
and the survival of humanity depends on doing this stuff. You know, we we talk about Jesus. Uh, you know, I've I've been raised in evangelical church and oftentimes when it comes to Christ there's so much focus on Jesus dying on the cross so we can go to heaven when we die and people become Christians you know believing that but i think one of the most important things that Jesus shows us about salvation is it is not merely a transaction. It is actually the posture of God to humble himself and step into our world and meet us in our pain and our dysfunction, to meet us right there. And God calls us to do the same. And this is where we can move from treating religion as merely something that we can get, you know, some kind of divine transactional system where I'll, I'll pay this amount of money in the offering. I'll say these prayers so I can get God to bless me. It, it, we can move from a transactional, transactional understanding of God and religion to one that is participatory. So for me, one of the reasons that, that I even want to sit down with people who are different from me, and I, I just did this last night. I'm sitting up at the bar in Abuse Springs watching football game, and I had a lovely conversation with a few people. I don't think any of them were Christians. One was a Buddhist, one was an atheist. I don't know what the other guy was, but had a great conversation where I think we all learned something from one another. It's not rocket science. It is difficult to step out of our comfort zone because we naturally all want to just you know, our default as human beings is we we are tribalistic. We tend to want to hang around people who have the same political point of view as us, people who have the same religion as us, people who go to the same Starbucks and shop at the same grocery store as us. That's just normal. But tribalism isn't going to cut it, folks. We got to get uncomfortable. We've got to move from slacktivism to a contemplative form of activism. And that activism doesn't start with changing the world. It starts with changing ourselves, looking inward, facing our own darkness, seeing how much even our protesting is fueled by stuff that's just not right within. And as we deal with that stuff, we begin moving outward to genuinely engage an authentic relationship with other people that may be different from us. I'll go back to the 12 steps for one moment. You know, one of the sad things when it comes to the 12 steps is that for most people, when they look at the 12 steps, they think, oh, that's that program for those alcoholics and those drug addicts. <laughs> when anybody can benefit from the wisdom of the 12 steps. I remember reading a book by a psychiatrist by the name of Gerald May. Gerald May wrote this fantastic book called Addiction and Grace, and he recounts his own story. He says that he was actually working in a hospital um, in with a bunch of people that were addicted to alcohol and drugs, and he had never had a problem with alcohol, never done drugs, but in working with these people, he realized that he had the same tendencies. It's only that his addictions happened to be socially acceptable. 
And it is so easy to demonize the ones who have these outrageous addictions, which society looks down upon, that are obviously harmful to drugs and alcohol or gambling, and to totally miss the addictive tendencies in our own life, our addictions to technology, our addictions to social media, our addictions to our own ego, to shopping, to consumerism, you name it. Most of the things that people are addicted to are not only socially acceptable, they're actually encouraged by society, but they are just as detrimental in the long term. One of the things that I think is so amazing about the 12 steps is not just the wisdom of the 12 steps, but the context. When you go to a 12-step recovery group, you're going to a group of people who are all admitting that they got a problem, that life isn't working out the way that they wanted it to, that they've got problems. And that's the only you know, kind of prerequisite for, for participating is just admitting you don't have it all together. But one of the reasons it's 12 steps works is that it is done in community. It is relational. It is people working through their stuff together. So if I can encourage you in anything today, I'd say find some people that you can have some authentic conversations with that may be in the same boat as you. So you can start facing some of the stuff in your own heart, some of the own darkness in your life. So you can deal with maybe the things that fuel your need to vent and to protest without actually getting your hands dirty. Deal with some of that stuff. Because it's amazing as you begin to deal with the stuff on the inside of your heart, the compulsion to do that other stuff greatly diminishes. Yes, I'm a highly opinionated person and I still share my <laughs> my positions and my opinions on various issues a lot, but I try not to share an opinion now on social media if I'm not willing to engage with someone face-to-face that uh, is facing the realities of which I want to share my opinion. Find some people in your life that you can have authentic relationship with, people that will help you face the stuff in your own heart, people that will encourage you but also kick you in the butt. And help you grow. And secondly, find some people that are different from you. Go sit down and have a conversation. Not trying to talk them into your point of view, but simply trying to understand them, their stories, and how they arrived at what they believe and where they're at. By simply doing that, you start moving the world incrementally in a better way. And whether you believe in God or not, doesn't matter. We can all benefit from this. So what do you do after Tuesday? After all the votes are counted and the winner, whether Republican or Democrat or maybe even independent, wins your local elections or your state elections or whatever it is that you're voting for, what do you do then? Well, you can either relish the victory of your side or vent how your side got shafted in the election or you can actually do something that will actually make a difference in. 
So the reality is, folks, look, I gave up on politics a, a long time ago. I, I still vote, and I'm going to vote tomorrow. I'm really hoping to start getting more involved in local elections because I do see a real hope in maybe doing things on a ground level. But my hope is not in the political systems of this country. <laughs> and the reality is, when it comes to some of the issues, whether it's macroeconomics or budget spending and things like that, I mean, I'm pretty outside of my pay grade. I, I can't understand so much of the stuff that goes into the, the talk of, you know, reform in the insurance industry and, and providing health insurance for people. Like, I've tried to engage in some of that. There's so many things that are way above my pay grade, and I, I'm trying to get more informed on them. But the reality is I can actually make a difference in my world. I may not be able to change things concerning socialized health care or defense spending or, you know, bailing out the banks. But I can make a difference with my life. And you can too. Thanks for listening. Well, that concludes this episode of Extra Crispy. Hey, the music that you heard on this podcast, I only had one little song in the interlude there, World Inside My Mind. That can be found on my album Following Branches Down to the Roots. And there's many songs on that album that kind of delve into these issues. And if you want to listen to that, you can check it out on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever it is you listen to music. Bless your ears that way. Sometimes I say things better in songs. I'm a lot shorter, so. <laughs> and hey, if you like what you're listening to, if you get a lot out of this podcast, go over to iTunes or Google Play or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. And if you don't like what you hear, you can hold off on that part. And you might want to even consider sharing the extra crispy love with, with some other people. Send the episode to a friend. We've got a lot of great guests lined up in the coming weeks, so um, really appreciate everyone who listens to this and uh, hope we can keep doing it. Thanks for listening, y'all. <laughs>